0: Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best selling book, Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by ICON Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way.
1: Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 20, 2020. I'm Joel Goldberg. First up this week, we have a January feature by Andrew Curry about a missing piece of Northern Europe. Scientists, citizen scientists, and energy companies alike are dredging up the story of this lost land. And in an interview from the AAAS annual meeting, producer Megan Cantwell talks with Elizabeth Margulis about the science of musical memory. We now speak with Andrew Curry, a freelance journalist based in Berlin. His new article in Science explores hidden treasures that have surfaced along the coast of the Netherlands. They include such things as Neanderthal tools, a woolly mammoth tooth, and human remains from thousands of years ago. These remarkable finds are lending significant insight into the ecological and anthropological history of the region. Hi, Andrew. Hi. The story highlights a variety of people, from a nurse to university professors, who are studying the samples from vastly different perspectives. Generally speaking, who were the scientists involved in the research?
2: So it's kind of an incredible array of different disciplines that are being brought to bear on the same question or region. There are geneticists, archaeologists, geographers, people who specialize in underwater mapping. And then there's also one of the things that really interested me in the story. There's a big contribution being made by amateurs interested in the finds and, and spend time just looking for this stuff on the beach where it washes up.
1: Right. So these things are just washing up on shore. What are some of the most compelling finds that have been dredged up? So some of the most compelling
2: finds are stone and bone tools and human remains that date back 7,000 or more years ago, some of which goes all the way back to 50,000 years when the, the area was populated by Neanderthals. They're also finding animal remains. They found mammoth skulls, all kinds of things that date back to a time when the shore off the Netherlands and the UK in the North Sea was actually above water.
1: So how are these finds turning up on the beach in the first place? It used to be that these finds would turn up in fishing nets
2: and sort of at random, but in the last few years, as the Netherlands has really focused on coastal reclamation and protecting their coast against sea level rise, they've been dredging sand and gravel offshore and bringing it and dumping it on the beach. And in those massive hundreds of thousands of tons of sand and gravel that they've brought in from offshore, there are bones, stone tools, human remains that slowly Mm. then get uncovered by the waves. And there are amateurs who go out to the beach every day almost and just look for this stuff as as it comes out of the sand pick it up, send pictures of it to archaeologists, We then identify it, and they work together to analyze it.
1: Awesome. And like you said, these finds are being found by all these different types of people. Could you outline some of the techniques being used to analyze the finds?
2: There's actually geneticists who are scraping DNA straight off the seafloor and showing what kind of plants and animals lived there when it was terrestrial land. The finds are one aspect of the whole effort devoted to trying to figure out what the landscape under the North Sea looked like before the last ice age ended and flooded the area. So, at one point, there was an area three or four times bigger than modern day Holland that was all above ground. There were forests, there were rivers, and it was probably heavily populated.
1: Sounds pretty beautiful, actually. Yeah what kind of DNA is being analyzed? So
2: geneticists are using ancient DNA techniques to look at both the soil to get DNA from there and also analyzing human remains that collectors have found on the beach that are actually really well preserved because of the cold and wet at the bottom of the sea to get whole human genomes. And you can then look at the ancient DNA from these populations that lived in an area that is now underwater.
1: Very cool. There's a specific item that surfaced that holds huge significance, and that's the landscape of the area being studied. What are some of the most important lessons learned about the landscape of this submerged region?
2: I mean, part of it is just that it's cool to go, as one of the researchers I talked to said, they're getting maps of a country that you can't visit. So there's this massive landscape that was once above water And they're testing out all these different ways to look at it that could also be applied to other coastal regions that were once habitable, that were once passages to new lands, like the landscape between Alaska and Asia, for example.
1: Beringia, they call it. Yeah.
2: And look at how, you know, how these areas worked for human migration, how humankind spread around the world. There are these key gaps in our knowledge because... The sea levels today are 30 meters higher than they were 25,000 years ago.
1: Right. And you mentioned these maps that they're able to make out of the information being collected. And one of the sources of that information are these energy companies. Could you explain how these energy companies are contributing to the data collection and what that data helped discover?
2: Sure. It's been a really interesting and sort of inspirational collaboration between scientists and industry in the the North Sea is a is a tremendously important commercial area for shipping and then there's a lot of wind farms oil well gas well drilling and so companies went out and did these seismic surveys to see what was deep under the ground and for the archaeologists it was the very top level that wasn't maybe commercially valuable but tremendously valuable in terms of the knowledge it contained about the landscapes. So they worked with the companies to get that data, and then were able to start these maps based on seismic survey data. There's also been some interesting collaboration between companies that dredge gravel for construction use, and then let archaeologists have access to the stones and dirt that are dragged up from the bottom of the sea,
1: which was once land. These maps and some of this information really are revealing what humans were like thousands of years ago, what civilization was like before this landscape changed. So what did this region, what does this research teach us about human history?
2: The very end of this landscape was populated by modern humans, just like you and me, who were hunter-gatherers. At first, they were in a, a landscape that was probably a lot like the most fertile parts of England or Holland or Belgium today. And then slowly over a couple hundred years, some of the research has revealed that as the water levels rose, it transformed into more of an estuary wetland area. But people kept living there and they managed to adapt and change their lifestyle to the rising seas, which I guess goes to show you that climate change is an old story.
1: Of course, that that begs the question, right? This begs the question of sea level rise, you know, impacted these civilizations and we can see it. Is that going to tell us something about our present?
2: On the one hand, they managed to deal with a certain level of sea level rise. And then there came a point about 7,000 years ago when there were a series of tsunamis and the landscape completely disappeared. It was rendered uninhabitable.
1: Tsunamis. That's that's pretty familiar, actually.
2: Yeah. I mean... For a while, archaeologists were reluctant to get into this, one expert told me, because they didn't want to be seen as digging after, chasing after lost continents or Atlantis or something like that. But as the techniques have gotten more and more advanced, it turns out that they can do some really scientific studies of this vanished continent.
1: What is your biggest takeaway from the research? I... I think my biggest
2: takeaway wasn't so much about the landscape as about the power of collaboration that the archaeologists involved have been really open to collaborating with amateurs who are walking along the beaches and collecting stuff, and they've been able to put those people together with geneticists. And there are people using seismic survey data that comes from oil companies. And only as kind of an interdisciplinary effort is it possible to get a real broad picture of this massive area.
1: Andrew, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Joel. Andrew Curry is a freelance journalist based in Berlin. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with Elizabeth Margulis about the science of musical memory.
3: I'm here at AAAS Annual Weaning with Elizabeth Margulis, who is a professor at Princeton University and also directs the Music Cognition Lab there. She gave a talk today on a panel about the science of music. Thank you so much for joining me, Elizabeth. Thank you, Megan. Your talk centered around a bunch of different studies, which were also fascinating. And I want to start with how you led your talk, which was playing this classic iconic song, Beethoven's Fifth, and then a probably less known rendition of it with kazoos. And you were explaining how we can still recognize this this motif, despite it being played very differently. The instrumentation is different. Why is that?
4: Yeah. So I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of music perception is the degree to which we recognize similarity in surprising kinds of contexts. I mean, starting from just the basic ability to recognize a theme when it's played at different pitch levels. Mm -hmm. So I suppose the easiest way to think about that is imagining yourself at a birthday party. You, you really never know what note happy birthday is going to start off on. <laughs> People, more or less, are able to kind of figure it out. And it sounds like the happy birthday tune, despite that it might be completely different pitches than it was the previous time. So there's this level of abstraction in theme recognition that extends to pitch as in the happy birthday example, but also to timbre. So I could play it on a piano or sing it or play it on a kazoo and we'd know that it was still happy birthday. What exactly is timbre? It's what makes the same pitch. So I could play a C on a violin or on a kazoo and they sound different, even though they might both be a C that aspect
3: that distinguishes those two instruments playing the same notes, we think about that as timbre. There are a lot of these really what we think are pretty well-recognized songs from Beethoven, Mozart. And then there's also this generational difference in music knowledge, which you touched upon in one of the studies you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about that?
4: One of the really puzzling parts about music has to do with individual differences. I mean, I might completely love a song that you can't stand. So that's going to make it really hard to have an account of musical engagement and experience that is not mediated by our own personal. Experiences. So it becomes a really interesting question. How do we understand the role of experience and exposure in shaping responses to sound?
3: And it seems like some generations both like music from the generation that they grew up in, but also have a good knowledge of their parents' generation of music as well. Yeah, there's really interesting work by Carol Krimhansl and colleagues
4: exactly uncovering this reminiscence bump for music of your parents' adolescence. It's a perennial question that people argue about is like, what's the best decade of mm-hmm. pop music? You know, But for most people, it turns out to be music of their own adolescence, like mm-hmm. whatever decade they happen to be adolescents in, followed by their second preference, which tends to be the decade their parents were adolescents in. So presumably the mechanism there is that while these while we're growing up and don't have a lot of say in what music we're exposed to, our parents are probably subjecting us to their favorite, which is probably the music from
3: their adolescent. And then there's also this interesting regional difference in how we can remember music, which involved a game of telephone, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, this is work by Nori Jacobi and colleagues that uses a Pretty
4: brilliant design, I think, to uncover the rhythmic priors that people bring to new strings of sounds. And the way this study works is exactly a game of musical telephone. You are provided this series of rhythms, you tap along with them. And unbeknownst to you, after the first iteration, the next iteration is not the initial seed rhythm, but it's the rhythm that you just tapped in response Mm -hmm. to the initial seed. And then how you tap to that becomes the seed for the subsequent round of tapping until what ends up emerging at the end is reflective of some kind of basic category that you brought to what you were hearing, right? Like it might be a little bit longer here and a little bit shorter here. They have kind of different sonic signatures almost, right? Exactly. Here's a great way of thinking about it. If you see music notated on the page, Mm -hmm. a rhythm notated on the page, you might see a quarter note and a quarter note and a half note. Mm -hmm. And that implies that the half note should be played twice as long as the quarter note. But nobody really does that. So if I play you as a performer, that rhythm, the third note's not going to be exactly twice as long as the second. It's going to be a little off from that. And that's good. Now, when I try to tap along with it, I'm normalizing that to a certain extent into the bin of one, one, two. And that's exactly what this study shows is that whatever categories of rhythms people have heard a lot, they're experiencing new ones in
3: terms of. In the United States, even in different regions, are there different sonic signatures? Or is it more like, People who mostly experience Western music in general have the same kind of understanding.
4: If you do not only this kind of study, but lots of different kinds of work of this sort that you bring to many places in the world, one thing people seem to be finding is that people who have a lot of exposure to mass media tend to kind of behave in similar ways to these kinds of of stimuli. It's really when you get to communities where the experiences are not as colored by, by that kind of exposure
3: that you find the really interesting kinds of differences. It's really cool how people's prior experiences with music shape the lens that they experience new music, which is one of the studies you talked about that you're working on right now about how when you present a song to people, they form different narratives from it. We were actually inspired
4: to do this work from experiments in the 1940s by Heider and Simmel, where they showed people abstract shapes moving around a screen and just ask them to describe the movie. And person after person seem to say things like, oh, you know, the triangle's in love with the circle, but the other (laughs) triangle's jealous and they're fighting about it. So there's this proclivity to narrativize some sort of abstract stimuli, perhaps. Another source for this line of work comes from a pedagogical experiment gone awry. So I teach classes in the psychology of music. So I thought I had this brilliant idea where I would play them this excerpt of instrumental music that they hadn't heard before and just ask them to tell me what they experienced in, mm-hmm. in, in in any kind of way. And, you know, my expectation was that some people would say, oh, I'm just thinking about what I want to have for lunch. Another person would say, oh, it was really loud. I, I didn't like it. Oh, you know, what have you. This first semester that I did, this person after person raised their hand and said, pirates, you're pirates.
0: So I, you
4: know, kept trying this semester after semester for lots of different kinds of excerpts. There were these very robust, very salient to people associated kinds of imagined stories. So I became really curious about that as a response to music that doesn't even have any words that might push you in a certain interpretive direction. And it seems quite plausible that many of these associations are driven by mass media. So that's a reason that we wanted to travel and try to understand these kinds of responses in groups of people that had very different media experiences.
3: And you played an excerpt of a song that was atonal and you played it to two different sets of people. So people who've had exposure to Western mass media in Arkansas and Michigan Mm -hmm. versus the same excerpt in rural China. What were the responses? Did they come up with different narratives? Did they conjure very different feelings and associations with the song? People at both U.S. sites in Arkansas and in Michigan told us
4: that something terrible was going to happen, that this excerpt was like right before a murder or something, you know, horrifying. Whereas the people in Demon, this place where we were in rural China, told us quite consistently that they were imagining going outside and having fun with friends. So when we tried to understand what might drive these very, very different interpretations that that are coherent in each place, Mm -hmm. it seemed that the people in Arkansas and Michigan were just so used to tonal music, music with this clear home pitch where you kind of knew you could orient yourself in terms of the tonal relationships, so that when that was withdrawn... And you had these kinds of notes you didn't know how to make sense of, that that really read as quite disturbing to them. Whereas the idea is that in the villages in, in rural China, people aren't invested in whether it's tonal or not, right? That's not the primary thing that they're expecting or, or listening for. In which case, some of the articulations of the excerpt, so they were quite staccato and detached, mm-hmm. might have read as playful. I think that's a really interesting corrective to the notion that people sometimes fall back on that music's a universal language. Mm -hmm. I think we want to be really thoughtful and nuanced about the way we understand music's potential to communicate, because if that's not delineated properly, we might think we're communicating and, in fact, be sowing some kind of division.
3: (laughs) These people that you played the music to in Arkansas and Michigan, Mm -hmm. were they all a similar age? Yes. In fact, they were both undergrads at large state
4: universities. So there's some presumable amount of shared background there. Mm -hmm. And another design that we have in mind, in addition to the cross-cultural component here, is looking across age groups, because you can in just in Arkansas and Michigan, say, in the same places where we collected the initial data, because that could also help illuminate the degree to which mass media is driving these effects, because people in their 70s and 80s probably have a different body of you know, mass media that they're drawing on than people in their 20s. Right.
3: It's shaped by what people have heard in the past. Are there any studies that talk about maybe if these listeners from Michigan or Arkansas started listening to more atonal music that they would maybe start picking up more on the nuances? Yeah. So another thing we thought about
4: is looking at people who have a huge amount of formal training in one kind of musical Mm -hmm. style. uh, Because intuitively, or just in anecdotally, I suppose, it seems that people with a lot of formal training in music, in fact, might do this narrativizing less. Mm. So they might have other kinds of Ways into the sound and to what's happening. What would their description sound like then if they
3: aren't saying, We're, you know, we're in the mountains? Right. I mean,
4: have... great question. So, the reason I know this is surprising to people is because I've spoken about this work at communities of performers, like music conservatories. Yeah. And, so, and they are the audience that this study is most surprising to. They just can't believe that you're going out there and playing these things to people and people are imagining pirates. They're like, like <laughs> What? So if you ask them about the excerpts, they'll often, you know, talk about the long lines, the rhythmic sweep. Their lens is very different that they're experiencing. Exactly, music. but I, I, you know, I, it seems that this is a really important gulf potentially between the people who are making some kinds of music and the people who are who are listening to it, because like you know, if you're really working on the nuance of what you're doing, and you don't know that that's going through a giant salient wall of pirates, you know, by the time it gets to your listeners ears, then you might be missing something about that communicative enterprise.
3: There's so (laughs) many different ways to interpret what people are saying and kind of dive Mm -hmm. into how other people are experiencing it. And I wanted to also touch upon What kind of broader applications really understanding music has?
4: Yes. So this is sort of a long game thought we have is that using this paradigm to kind of probe the set of stories people have readily available to them. In our first year of study, we used 128 excerpts. It was really a lot. And we got this sort of horizon view of the kinds of stories that music triggers in various places and that it seemed to tap into maybe some set of just what narratives are available to people in a place. Like what are the kinds of structuring devices people use to understand sound maybe, mm-hmm. but maybe also their lives and and yeah. what's around them and, and what have you. Having a map of how that works in different places seems like it could be really important for aiding intercultural understanding and communication through nonverbal channels like music.
3: Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Okay, thank you. That was Elizabeth Margulis, Director of the Music Cognition Lab at Princeton University. You can find a link to her session from the 2020 AAAS Annual Meeting at sciencemag.org podcasts.
1: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. This show was produced by Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us.
0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.